Can you hear me now? We were just talking about you in the lobby or on the live stream. You couldn't hear us. But you know, it's interesting. If I have a microphone that's hooked up properly, it's plugged in, the batteries are charged. But if I flip the switch to off, it doesn't work. It becomes powerless and ineffectual. How many of us in our Christian lives are disconnected from the source of power and we render our walk powerless and ineffectual? How many of us have the power switched off? My aim this morning is to have Overland Hills Church flip the switch. I want us to connect to that power of God through the conduit of prayer. And when I say Overland Hills Church, I'm talking about myself too. Many times preachers will prepare a sermon that they themselves need to hear. And this is no exception, maybe no truer than today. If there ever was a pastor that needed to hear a sermon about the power of prayer and staying connected to God's source of power in the Holy Spirit, it would probably be me. And so to remind myself of that, I made a little paper cutout of my face so that I can join you in the audience. So I'm going to put this down here in the front row because I need this as much if not more than you. And so if you see me looking down and staring at myself, you know that this is what I need to hear. So this morning, what we are going to look at is a representation of what it looks like to stay connected through prayer. We're going to look at the early church in the book of Acts. I'll also give you an illustration of what might help us visualize what it looks like to stay connected through prayer. And we will finish with an application through the epistles and the command and encouragement from the Apostle Paul on how we should stay connected through prayer. So there's a representation, an illustration, and an application. So first, the representation. If you have a Bible, and I encourage you to get one out, turn to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. And if you don't own a Bible of your own, I know earlier we said we give Bibles to the children. But, you know, we also have tons of free Bibles for you as adults or anyone in the room. If you want one of those black Bibles that's in the chairs in front of you, that is a gift to you. If you maybe don't have the ESV version, which we use here, or uh, your Bible's kind of run out, or whatever it may be, we'd love to be able to give you that as a gift. You're not stealing from us. Please take it home. So we're going to read Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, as a representation this morning. So let's read this together. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, 
but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Would you join me in praying and asking God to apply this to our lives? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, which gives us life. We thank you for your grace to be able to read it today in a language we understand We thank you that you hear our prayers. Would you speak through your word today? Would you convict us, change us, encourage us, and draw us near as we seek your truth and your will in this world? Give us eyes of faith, hearts of understanding, and the power to obey. Amen. So the idea for this sermon actually came out of my normal Bible reading, which I started kind of reading through Book of Acts a few weeks ago. And this sentence just jumped off the page. And so it got me thinking about this idea of prayer and the power of prayer. Because I thought it was odd here in the beginning of Acts, this story of the early church of Jesus Christ on what Jesus commands them to do. See, he was with the disciples and after his resurrection had met with them and talked with them. He was coming and going. At one time, there were even 500 people that saw him, witnessed him in his resurrected body. And he ate breakfast with them. He cooked lunch with them. He would come and go and just be with them. And all the while, he was giving them this message, a command to go and spread the good news about him. Tell everyone about his resurrection. But then look at verse 4. It says, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. So he tells them, he orders them, he commands them, to not go anywhere, to wait. This caught my attention because I thought, wait a minute, Jesus, I thought this whole time you were telling them to go. 
right? Isn't it the Great Commission? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, right? Going here, there, and everywhere. And even later on, he says, you're going to be my witnesses all different places around the world to the ends of the earth. So, Jesus, are you trying to confuse us? Which one is it? Is it go or is it stay? You know, if you're trying to command your dog with this, it's go, no, stay, no, go, no, stay. And the dog's just, just in circles. And is that how we should feel this morning? Even in Luke chapter 24, which is the precursor to the book of Acts, if you didn't know that, Luke wrote both. He wrote Luke, then he followed on with the book of Acts. But in Luke chapter 24, verses 48 and 49, Jesus said this to his disciples, very similar language. You are my witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So what are we to make of this order of Jesus to stay? I'd say this, the command to go is only possible when they obeyed the command to stay and receive the power from the Holy Spirit. If you go without the power, you go in vain. If you go without the power to fuel your going, then you will fail. If you attempt to obey the command to go without first obeying the command to stay, you will be ineffectual and powerless like a microphone switched off. In verse 8, we see how Jesus words it there. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then, and only then, will you be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth. The power to obey the Great Commission and live the Christian life is made possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. There is no other way to do it. You cannot do it on your own strength, in your own power. If you want to obey the command to go, you must first obey the command to stay and wait for his power. The power to obey the Great Commission and live the Christian life is made possible through the Holy Spirit. And the disciples here, they were waiting for chapter 2, for Pentecost, for the Holy Spirit to descend upon them. And we know from some scholarly research that it's about 10 days from the ascension of Jesus where he flies up into the sky, disappears, and the angels show up and ask them, what are you guys looking at? It's about 10 days from that moment until Pentecost in chapter 2 where the Holy Spirit comes down. And so they have a little over a week of waiting, of waiting. Which this seems kind of counterintuitive, don't you think, of how we normally would do things. As the expression goes, you got to strike when the iron is hot, right? You got to take advantage of their excitement of this momentum that they have. Who plans a pep rally and then waits a week for the game to start? You don't do that because just the players and everybody's going to forget all that you have done, right? You don't just have your big powwow and you got everybody's hands in the middle. All right, one, two, three, go team Jesus. All right, now let's just go wait for a week. And just sit in a room with one another. You got to take advantage of their excitement, right, Jesus? But no, he says there's something else going on here. They need to wait 
for a reason. See, if we tried to put ourselves into the place of the disciples, they had had a pretty amazing couple of months, if you've ever read through the Gospels. The last couple of months and even the last couple of weeks must have been just so exciting in life and just their minds blown on a daily basis. Just all the great stuff that God is doing. Just, just let's enter into their world for a minute. Where you're, you've been following Jesus and he's been doing his normal miracles, if there are such things. Walking on water, calming the storms, healing the sick, all that fun stuff. But then one day you hear of Lazarus, a good friend that you all knew, has died. And so you go to the tomb, you see Jesus weeping. There's a huge crowd. But then you hear Jesus look at that gravesite and say, Lazarus, come out. Live. And Lazarus just walks out of the tomb. And then you go to his house and you have dinner with him. Like, you got to live this with him. Do you imagine, who, like, who sat next to Lazarus? The, like, just kind of give him the side eye, watching him eat. Like, is he really alive? Is this, like, zombie thing going? And did you ask him any questions? Like, where have you been the last four days? Like, where have you been? Or did you just, like, die and the next moment you're standing again? Or, like, did you hear Jesus say live? Or were you still dead at that point? And it's not until after he said live that you actually came to life and then you just wandered out of the tomb. I have so many questions for Lazarus and the disciples are just sitting there just in awe of this. And there's this big just excitement around the power of God on display. Well, then not much uh, after that, there's a parade that you get to participate in on the way up to Jerusalem, right? This great season where people are singing and you're thinking, Jesus, he's got something going. There's this momentum. We're excited about what Christ has got. Maybe he, this is it. This is his time. We're going into Jerusalem. And, and look at all these people that are just celebrating. Salvation is here. Jesus is going to establish his kingdom. And by the end of the week, there's betrayal. Fear, heartache, disappointment, and shock. As you see Jesus Christ, your one and only hope, crucified to a Roman cross. You hide in fear. And you doubt everything that you have experienced so far. And you're so confused. But then Sunday comes. And at first you think it's just a rumor. But then it is confirmed. Jesus Christ is alive. He can not only defeat death in others, he defeated death in his own life and he rose from the dead and he meets with you and he talks with you. Here is Jesus Christ right in front of you. This is, this is just so exciting that you couldn't contain the disciples. And if we were like living in Jerusalem at the time, there's other passages that should like cause us to pause. Like in Matthew, you remember that story in Matthew where it says when Jesus rose from the dead, a bunch of other people just got up out of their tombs and came back into the city with him. And just like they, not necessarily with him, but they rose when he rose and there was just dead people that came to life. 
Like here you are, a disciple of Jesus, and you get a knock on your door, and you open it, it's like, hey, Uncle Jedediah, like I was at your funeral last year. And he's like, I know, I died, and here I am. And you're like, dude, how did you do that? You're like, I don't know, Jesus. He like broke the space-time continuum or something, and he just walked out of death. And I go, oh, where's he going? And I followed him right out the door, and I just showed up in the grave, and here I am at your house. You got anything to eat? Like, what are these guys experiencing? This is mind-blowing. The, these events, you've never had a month like that where dead relatives come back, your savior dies and rises again and he's meeting with you and he's giving you a mission that changes your life. You've never had an experience like that. So you're ready to go. The Romans are freaking out. The religious leaders have no answer. They don't know what to do. Nobody knows what's going on. Everybody's abuzz with these news reports of Jesus sightings and stories of the dead. There's so much excitement, and Jesus gives you this message. You're ready to go share. And Jesus looks at you and says, hey, nothing can stop you. Death cannot stop you. Have you seen Lazarus? You've seen me? What are you afraid of? Death? I got that covered. You afraid of the Romans? Yeah, look what they did to me, and I defeated it. We can defeat it. The gates of hell will not stand against you, he says. So let's go. How much like just like, yes. Talk about like, go out there. Let's go. Pep rally for Jesus. But on his way out, he says, but wait. Wait. I know we're all excited. It's been a pretty busy couple of weeks. But you're not ready yet. You might be able to go and be excited about it. But you're lacking the power from on high. You're missing the power of God. So wait. You cannot do this on your own. And so in verse 14, here's what the disciples do. It says, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Everyone the disciples, the women disciples, the men disciples, the families, whoever was a follower of Christ, they for 10 days devoted themselves to prayer and they waited for the power on high to come and apply to them and empower them to complete the mission that Jesus Christ had given them. They waited in prayer for the power of God. And their waiting, it showed their dependence upon God, and it proved that it was his mission, his ministry. It is his church, his people, his gospel, and it is his power to accomplish any of it. It is good for us to wait before the Lord and to wait for his power. To be forced to rely on his timing and his ways rather than our own. Much of prayer is just expressing our trust in the Lord while we wait. Andrew Murray, a South African pastor and author, says, As you wait before God in holy silence, he sees it as a confession that you have nothing, no wisdom to pray aright, no strength to work aright, Waiting is the expression of need and of emptiness. 
the disciples in all their excitement, they were still lacking that power from God. And they gained an appreciation of that missing component by their waiting in prayer. Ten days of crying out to God to come fulfill the promise that he had just made to them. Pleading with God to accomplish the will of God. Seeking and finding the Lord in prayer because he could no longer be found at the dinner table or in the garden. They needed to find Jesus in prayer. So they grew in their dependence upon God. And after a season of waiting, the Holy Spirit arrives in power and he propels them into obedience of the Great Commission and to faithful ministry for years to come. Now today, we are not waiting for the Holy Spirit to descend upon us. The Holy Spirit is our helper and he indwells every believer in Jesus Christ. He is with us even now helping you to understand his word, and I pray, speaking through me and this message. We have the Holy Spirit as a gift, but I believe that we still access this power of the Holy Spirit through prayer, primarily. Now, the Holy Spirit can certainly do what he wants, and he's not limited by me in any way, but it seems like the primary method of us as Christians To access this power and to have that switch turned on is to express our faith through prayer. And I believe the early church in the book of Acts represents that well. So again, there are good representation or example of what the Christian life should look like. And if you were to do just a cursory reading through the book of Acts, you'd see this church that is dependent upon prayer. If you were to throw a rock and it would just skip through the book of Acts like skipping a stone on a lake, you can see prayer everywhere. In Acts chapter 2, the Spirit comes at Pentecost after they pray. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John, they're going up at the hour of prayer, and it's at that time that they heal a man that was born lame, and they set Jerusalem abuzz again. In Acts chapter 4, the believers are praying with boldness and courage as they start to face persecution. And it's what lets them rejoice in their persecution as the gospel witness goes out to thousands. Acts chapter 10, Peter is praying and he sees a vision of the sheet coming down with all those unclean animals. And Cornelius is in his house praying when Jesus sends Peter to Cornelius so that the gospel can go out to the Gentiles and not just be with the Jews. Acts chapter 12, Peter is in prison and the believers are praying for him. And they're so in-depth in their prayer that when God answers their prayer and frees Peter, he's out there knocking on the door and they don't even answer. They shut the door at his face. Remember that story? And Peter is released out of prison because the people were praying. Acts chapter 13, through prayer and fasting, Paul and Barnabas are set apart and sent out as missionaries to the Gentiles. Acts chapter 16, through prayer, Paul sees a vision to take the gospel to Macedonia. In Acts chapter 16, later on, 
Paul and Silas are in prison. And while praying in prison and singing hymns, their chains fall off, the prison doors swing open, and a Philippian jail and his family are saved, and the church of Philippi is born. Acts chapter 20, through prayer, the Ephesian elders were able to strengthen Paul for his final journey to Jerusalem and ultimate imprisonment. And the list goes on and on. The early church was a church of prayer. They were dedicated to prayer. They were devoted to prayer. They were dependent on prayer. They were delighted in God in prayer. They were diligent in their prayer. They were desperate in their prayer. And prayer defined them, and their prayers made them distinct in this world and set them apart. Because they were a church of prayer, they were a church of power the Holy Spirit moving in them and through them to accomplish the very task that God had given them to carry out, many times in miraculous ways. So in Acts, we see a representation of the church. How closely do we resemble that model? How well do we follow their example? Do we lack the power of the Holy Spirit working and moving through us? Might I suggest that we lack this power because we fail to pray? Jesus said, you do not have because you do not ask. Are we asking God for enough? Are we asking God for enough? George Whitfield, the great evangelist who saw the power of God in his uh, day during the Great Awakening, faithfully preached the gospel for decades, seeing countless sinners repent and turn to the Lord, whole communities changed by the gospel. And in fact, this nation changed even up until this day by the power of the Holy Spirit in his day. He said this in one of his sermons on prayer. If we ask Why is so little love to be found amongst Christians by which everyone should know that we are disciples of Jesus? We shall find it in a great measure owing to a neglect or superficial performance of that excellent part of prayer, intercession, or imploring the divine grace and mercy on behalf of others. You will find little love where there is little prayer. If you desire to love more, to be filled with Christ's love, to be known for your love, then increase your prayer. Be known for your prayer and draw close to God who is love and the source of love. And when you draw closer to him, the greater your capacity will be to reflect that love that comes from him. And it is in that love of Christ that we see the power of the Holy Spirit on greatest display. So the early church is a good representation. Now, for an illustration. Oh, no. How does this work? Train whistle. Just imagine it in your minds. The train whistle failed me. How many of us like trains, right? Trains are fun. I'll figure that out by the end. There's a trick to it, I know. Um, There are all kinds of trains, right? 
bullet trains, Amtrak passenger trains, big cargo trains, uh, different types, but they're all made of essentially the same thing. Like, I'm embarrassed about that. I'm all sweaty now. Sorry, we got to get back into this. Trains, right? Different kinds of trains on tracks. Trains on tracks. But what every train needs, whether it's a big coal-carrying cargo train, Amtrak train, bullet train, whatever it is, they all need an engine, an engine. Big train filled with coal isn't going anywhere without an engine to pull it. So the next time you see a train on the tracks, I want you to think of it this way. Look at see what leads the train, and you'll see up there the engine always in the front, always pulling the train. Now, it is possible for an engine to be at the back. That means the train's going backwards, but it has a limited speed. I checked with John Hawkins, our resident uh, train expert, and he told me this. You could get about 10 to 15 miles per hour, and that's about it, with a train going backwards being pushed with the engine in the back. Otherwise, it loses control and it'll derail, right? And you have a big giant train accident. But when the engine's in the front being led by the power, you can get millions of pounds going 70 miles an hour down the track, and everything changes. See, the power to accomplish those kinds of speeds at the, and have that weight being pulled is because of the power of the engine. The Holy Spirit is the engine of the Christian life. He is our power that empowers us to move and to walk. And when he leads us, and it's his will, his way, him deciding how fast we go, whether we slow down or speed up, or what's the safe way to get through this area of the tracks. When he is our engine pulling us along, that's when you see the power at work. And just as trains are joined together, you've seen the coupling parts, right? When two trains, they come together and they have those little clamps and they, and they clamp together, right? You see those coupling joints of the trains connecting each and every car? Imagine that as prayer. Prayer connecting us to the engine and our Christian life. Now, I was also talking with uh, John, and he said, you know, they've discovered that for the really long trains, the ones that could be like miles long, they actually put multiple engines at the front, some engines in the middle, and some engines in the back. And how perfect is that for our Christian walk? The Holy Spirit going before us, leading us in the way we need to go. The Holy Spirit sustaining us in the middle as he walks through that valley of the shadow of death with us. And the Holy Spirit at the end, giving us encouragement and challenge and that motivation to keep on going, the endurance to continue on. All connected with that power of prayer leading us all the way along. Here's our illustration of the train. So a representation, a train as an illustration, and now an application. I'd encourage you, if you have your Bible still in front of you, to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And I want to read the conclusion of the Apostle Paul's letter to the uh, church in Thessalonica, and I'm just stealing his application for our application. 
when you're looking for a great application, just use what the Apostle Paul says. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we're going to read from verse 14 through 19. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. See, the Apostle Paul, he wanted the church in Thessalonica to be patient, to wait, just like Jesus wanted his disciples to be patient and wait. He wanted them to rejoice in the Lord and to pray without ceasing, giving thanks, and to not quench the Holy Spirit through a lack of prayer. He's essentially saying, hey guys, don't turn the power off. Don't uncouple the train cars from the engine. One way that we quench or quiet or restrict the power of the Holy Spirit is through a lack of prayer. When we fail to pray without ceasing. It's not that we have power over the Holy Spirit and we get to direct Him what He wants to do or limit Him in some way. We don't have that kind of power. But what the Apostle Paul, I think, is telling us is that God has arranged and orchestrated life in such a way that the Holy Spirit does respond and act and apply His power when we pray. Prayer changes things, including ourselves. People ask this question all the time. What is God's will for my life? What should I do? Where should I go? I love this passage because it tells you very specifically what is the will of God in your life. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances. You can rejoice always and give thanks in all circumstances if and only if you pray without ceasing. If you remain connected to the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, He will empower you to do those other two things. So if you want to know, what does God want me to do? Pray. And in your prayer, rejoice. And pray. And in your prayer, give thanks. And pray. Now, praying without ceasing does not mean that we become hermit monks and hang out on a hill. But like the early church, what we do is we remain connected to the power of the Holy Spirit through prayer. The Holy Spirit leading us from the front, going before us, and we always asking him, what is next? Where would you have me go? What would you have me do? Who can I speak to today? The Holy Spirit always leading us forward. The Holy Spirit also always sustaining us. So we're in the middle of something, the middle of a family meeting, the middle of work, the middle of a gospel conversation, the middle of the struggle or sitting in the hospital room. When we're in the middle of the mess, We go to the Lord in prayer once again. And then when the things conclude and at the end of our days, at the end of that meeting, at the end of that moment, we can give thanks to God, whatever the result, because we know that in him we have hope. 
And so when we stay connected to him through prayer always, that is how we pray without ceasing. So may we be a powerful church known for our prayers. May you, may you be empowered by the Spirit himself in your prayers. From that same Whitfield sermon I mentioned a moment ago, here's an encouragement to remain steadfast in prayer and to see what happens when you remain connected and empowered by prayer to the Lord. Here's what he says. It will fill your hearts with love for one another. He that every day heartily intercedes at the throne of grace for all mankind will in a short time be filled with love and charity to all. And the frequent exercise of his love in this way will certainly enlarge his heart and make him partaker of that exceeding abundance of the love which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Envy, malice, revenge, or hellish tempers can never linger long in a gracious intercessor's heart. But he will be filled with joy, peace, meekness, long-suffering, and all other graces of the Holy Spirit. By frequently laying his neighbor's wants before God, he will be touched with a fellow feeling of them. He will rejoice with those that do rejoice and weep with those that weep. Every blessing bestowed on others, instead of exciting envy in him, will be looked on as an answer to his particular intercession and fill his soul with joy unspeakable and full of glory. I think Whitfield gets it. When we're praying for one another, then we have more to rejoice in when we see God answer those prayers. This is our application. This is what I want for our church, what I want us to be known for. I want us to be the weird church in Papillion that prays too much and in weird kind of ways. Like we're scaring our community because of how we pray. Think about it. The world does not understand prayer. They don't get this. They don't get to go to God in this fashion. The world does not get it when we cry out to God in prayer. They should be confused and weirded out by our prayers. I do not want to quench the spirit, but I want Overland Hills Church to be connected to the engine of the Christian life. So here's some ways that we might be purposeful in prayer. Just some ideas that I have. They're not rules, they're not have-tos, but they're suggestions maybe. Some very practical applications that you and your family might be able to do to stay connected through prayer. One is, have you ever just gathered to pray, maybe with some friends or a neighbor or somebody here in the church? You're like, let's go to lunch. But the lunch is going to be we eat and then just pray. You have that as the plan, not as an afterthought. That's putting the engine at the back. But you say, let's get together and pray. Parents, maybe you have a play date and you let the kids run around in the basement while the parents pray desperately for one another that they can be good, godly parents leading their children in this world. Maybe use a care group, have prayer text messages. And you actually don't just say, I'll pray for you, but you can write a prayer in a text. Take the time to write something out and send it to the Lord and to the person you're praying for. Write an email of a prayer for someone else. Jot down a note and give them like old-fashioned mail and just write a prayer for someone else 
and send it to them. Before you have any kind of difficult situation, a meeting maybe, or a conference or something at work, you invite others into that mess so they can pray with you. I think oftentimes we're far too proud about what's going on in life. We, we only bring up the things that are okay to share and ask people to pray for those things that are common knowledge. There should be people in your life that you can share anything with that they can lift that up to the Lord in prayer. Because sometimes in this life, we may not know what to say. And I love when you read through the New Testament, how the Holy Spirit actually takes our groanings in Romans chapter 8, and he prays them on our behalf. But then have you ever thought about this, that the church is the body of Christ here on earth? Is Jesus Christ manifest in this world, the body of Christ here And when you ask other believers in the church to pray for you, that is like Jesus Christ praying for you on your behalf. So you got the Holy Spirit praying for you. You got the church as the body of Christ praying for you. And all the while, also in Romans, it says that Jesus is in heaven representing you to his Father, praying for you. And it's everybody is here for you, lifting up these things before God. If we would only ask, if we would only share, and not try and keep them within. Many of us have regular mealtime prayers where we pray before we eat. That's a great habit to get in. But are there other regular activities that you can surround with prayer? Maybe you pray while you drive. You pray before you're pulling into your driveway. Maybe you pray every night before you go to bed with your kids. Maybe parents, you give a blessing and pray scripture over your children. You pray before you go to sleep. You do prayer walks in your neighborhood. If you don't think praying around your neighborhood on a regular basis and walking and praying house to house won't change your neighborhood, you're not reading your scriptures. That is the power of God at work in your community. Whether you host any giant meeting or have an evangelistic tent in your front yard, just be praying for your neighbors. Don't just stumble into it by accident. Pray on purpose. The youth, one of the things that we do that's weird is we do a Daniel prayer. Every Sunday morning for Sunday school and every evening at youth group, we get on our knees. And even if there's visitors, like first-time visitor coming as a teenager to these like cool kids and everybody's like, okay, it's time to pray. And we get on our, our knees and we pray to God like Daniel did three times a day. And it reorients our hearts to say, God, I've got nothing and we need you. And it shows the visitors that are there that we mean what we say. We do actually need God to respond in prayer. We need God to work and to move. And we believe that he's listening to us and we submit to him. So it's kind of weird, but we love to pray our Daniel prayer. Also, when you pray, expect God to move and to act. That will give you an opportunity to give him praise. May I invite you once again to next week, allow the youth to pray for you. Whether it's by filling out that card and giving it to me before the end of the day or sometime this week, so that we can pray for you by name, pray for something specific in your life. Or if it's you sign up on that timesheet and you, you come and you spend 10 minutes, that'd be pretty weird. 
you're hanging out with your neighbors next Sunday, and they're like, oh, where you got to go? You got to go somewhere? Yeah, I'm going to the church because I'm going to let some teenagers pray for me. Like, oh, no, what's happening? You having surgery, something big going on? You say, no, I just need more of Jesus. And I trust that God listens to them just as much as he listens to me. So I'm going to let some teenagers pray over me. That's weird. That's weird. And that'll be a conversation starter. Last application, one, this is for fun. We've just started this at the youth group as well. You can pray the Bob. Not for Bob. He would appreciate all the prayers you can give him, but not pray for Bob. Pray the Bob. Bob as an acronym. It stands for the first B is a burden for the lost. If you got up every morning and you said, Lord, break my heart for the lost today. Help me to see them as people, not as your enemies, but as the lost sheep that need to be rescued. Have a burden for the lost. The O stands for an opportunity to share the gospel. Pray that today God would give you that chance, whether it's at a grocery store, in a meeting, or over the phone, whenever it may be, pray for an opportunity to share the gospel that day. And then the last B, pray for boldness to speak the truth when the opportunity arises. A boldness to speak the truth. So a burden for the lost, an opportunity to share the gospel, and a boldness to speak the truth. If Overland Hills Church would wake up every day and pray the Bob, I think we'd see God move in a mighty way. And if you ever forget that, it's written on the wall in the youth room. So one final verse to conclude our application. This, you don't have to turn there, but this is James chapter 5, verses 16 to 18. It says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. See, prayer has power because you're connecting to the Holy Spirit, the engine of the Christian life. Now, if you hear that passage and you start to think that that doesn't apply to you because you're not a righteous person, then let me remind you of the gospel. Let me remind you that Jesus Christ died for your sins, that he was killed on that cross to pay the penalty that was supposed to be yours to pay. He died to get rid of those filthy rags that you bring to the Lord. All of your failings, all of your mistakes, all of the things that you have done to rebel against God, that's why Jesus Christ came to die, to remove them from you and to give you true forgiveness. And not only that, to then give you his very righteousness. And so Christian, with the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, boldly approach his throne and cry out to God and watch the prayer of a righteous person accomplish much. Because he is listening to you because you have been redeemed by his son. So Overland Hills Church, let's flip the switch. Let's turn on the power of God in our church, in this community, and in our lives. Let's use the early church as a representation of what it can look like to be guided and led by prayer.
Every time you see a train, I want you to be reminded of the engine is the power of God and the Holy Spirit joined together by those coupling joints through prayer. And let's just pick one or two of those applications. And let's just start praying more and differently so that we can be a church empowered by prayer and change this world. Let's pray together now. Lord, it is only through you that we can do any of this. It is only through your gospel that we can be made new and be considered righteous in your sight. We all, like Elijah, have our doubts and fears and failings and sins. He had a nature just like ours, it said. And yet he prayed and it didn't rain for three years more. And then he prayed again and caused the rain to fall. You are, this, you are the same Lord. You are the same God in the days of Elijah, in the days of Christ in the early church. You're the same God yesterday, today, and forever. You have the same power to be at work in our lives, at work in this community, at work in our church. So Lord, I pray and we beg you, Lord, to move and to act and to stir in us a desire to pray more, a desire to seek you out. May it not be a burden that we feel overwhelmed to pray, whether it's coming to a prayer meeting or praying in church or praying at care groups or praying with our family. May it not be a burden, but may it be our joy. May it be our joy. Lord, may we meet with you and see you at work so that we can rejoice always in what you have done, so that we can give you thanks, so that we can give you glory. Lord, would you use today's words from your scriptures to impact our hearts and our minds and change us forever. Amen.